0: hi everyone this is monday morning 8 a.m a podcast from firms consulting where we distill the insights from the week for our firms consulting insiders around the world but we also make this podcast available to everyone if you would like to receive the latest episodes of this podcast go to firmsconsulting.com forward slash promo and input your contact details Each week you'll receive the latest episode and the newsletter typically contains additional images and links that are relevant to the story. You can also listen to the podcast on any podcast app. Just go to the app and type in strategy skills in the search box and the podcast will come up. And if you want to read the insights that have already been published, you can go to amazon.com and type in strategy skills. It's all available as a Kindle book so let's talk about some of the big big stories shaping the world today i'm going to pivot back into streaming because it is probably one of the biggest digital shifts we are seeing whether it's in books whether it's in audio whether it's in video whether it's in podcasts there's a lot of conversations taking place with many companies around the world in terms of how do they build successful business models around streaming whether these are gigantic companies like netflix to small indie podcast producers I have a client who is an executive in strategy at a fairly large streaming organization in the United States. And what I'm going to do is is I'm going to paraphrase some of the discussions we've had to underpin this overarching theme that we're seeing in the news about the economics of streaming. The underlying issue that her business is facing and many businesses are facing is that the artists who supply the content for the streaming platforms have been complaining because they are not being paid enough whether it is artists streaming on spotify or podcasters streaming on other platforms they feel that the percentage of revenue they make is not big enough in the old model of let's say uh, the music industry the music industry the uh, large recording labels they would listen to many potential stars they would pick a few They'd pay them in advance, they would assign a big budget behind them, massive promotion, share something around 30% of the profits or less, and only once the advance has been paid off will the artist continue to get the 30% of profits. In the new model, and this is where things change a bit, anyone really can create music and distribute it through numerous streaming sites you could go on to Spotify, you can go onto YouTube music, and you can use a number of monetization models, whether it's getting a percentage share of profits through Spotify, with its ad revenue from YouTube. No one's putting a big advertising budget behind you. No one's putting a big promotional budget behind you. No one's giving you an advance. Most of your capabilities in terms of how you generate sales is about optimizing one, your uh, titles, but also to building a large media following, social media, for people to listen to you. You probably will take a larger share sometimes, but there's no advance, and this is happening across many sectors, whether it's books, whether it's podcasts, whether it's music, whether it's TV. And the conversation I had with the client, that entire organization was really caught up in how should they strategically manage this overriding set of complaints from artists. are complaining they're not being paid enough so what i had to do is that i had to step back for a second and say okay the underlying premise of everything your company is doing is to say the complaints are a problem let's step back and see what exactly is happening the population of the countries where that platform is available has obviously grown over time but the percentage of people who are listening to music has stayed roughly the same so what's happened here? The percentage of people listening to music has stayed roughly the same. But at the same time, there's been an explosion in the number of artists who have music streamed through their technology and app. There's been an explosion in the amount of music. There's been an explosion in the number of channels to get to customers. So now just basic, Mathia. If you've got the same amount of people listening, but you've got more artists and more music, And you've got roughly the same amount of money being created overall in the industry in fact it's even less now because people pay less for streaming the returns per artist are going to drop that's just basic math because you've got a fixed. previously you had let's assume that the economics of streaming are not different let's assume the profit per song was the same as cds and so on but if you've got many more artists with the same number of listeners the profit per artist is going to drop But at the same time, the market values streaming less than they value a CD or DVD, so they pay less for it. So there's an even steeper drop. This is not that her company is doing something wrong or is trying to steal money from everyone. It's just the economics has changed. So that's the first thing I got them to look at. The second thing is that why is their strategy one of validating the complaints? Of course, to some degree, they may be true because maybe the technology company is keeping too much of the operating income for itself and net income. But the reality is, it doesn't matter what the technology company is doing, the economics have changed. And what's happened here is a situation whereby all these artists who have entered the music industry, they still do what they've always done. They um, produce songs and they try to produce better songs. They were doing that five years ago. They were doing that 10 years ago. They were doing that 15 years ago. They were doing that 20 years ago. But there's a very big difference here. Without the backing of a big record label, they don't have the capabilities to run what is essentially a mini business. Because previously, a record label managed the business side for you, and the artist just performed. But now, each of these miniature artists, for lack of a better word, Hindi artists, as they call them, they produce songs, but they need a different skill set because the economics have changed and the business has changed. Basically, rather than developing a strategy of trying to minimize complaints by saying it's not your fault, maybe you need a strategy of trying to give the artists tools they never had, but they really need now, but also educating them that they need these tools. It's like a DIY model. People today, a lot of artists are going to music they need to do it themselves they don't have a record label to help them and a lot of the things that they assumed a record label was not doing to help them be successful they've now realized without that they actually cannot be successful it's like this imagine you decide to remodel your home and you do a pretty good job but you do it all by yourself so you want architectural digest which is a premium architectural magazine to review your house but why will architectural digest review your house if you don't have a world-class designer working on the house you don't have a world-class contractor you don't know anyone at architectural digest it's the same with indie content producers they want the result of working with a big label but they don't have the tools and even if they don't have the tools they don't understand that they need these tools so what is the big insight here the big insight here is that this company was essentially fighting and being defensive about the conversation about lower profits for their content producers. And what I show them is they need to shift the conversation away from one of combativeness to one whereby you're saying, look, it's going to be lower because the economics and the industry has changed. You can't avoid that. You need to know that. But we acknowledge there are certain things you need because you're an independent producer of content and we're going to produce those tools for you so their strategy changed from one of being defensive to seeing an opportunity to create these tools that artists would pay a slight premium for it's a subscription-based model and it bolstered their revenue the insight here is that strategy is always about knowing what's happening and knowing the numbers but even when you know the numbers you can get caught into a paradigm set of being defensive if you're constantly under attack But how revenue has fallen and profit has fallen you sometimes start believing that even though it's not your fault in this particular case it's not the fault of the technology company it's an explosion of content with a reduction in the perceived value from customers but there's also an opportunity for giving content producers the tools to bolster the skills they need that they don't get from a studio so you can see how strategy tactics all change and that's how you need to think about things and there's going to be many opportunities like this because the world is very young in it's streaming um, in the streaming wars as such many things that exist online that exist offline are going to go online and you're going to get more and more independent content producers the next big topic and it's probably one of the biggest topics we're seeing is a question i have which is why is only labor cost strategy elimination a strategy for labor costs think about it I can think of my entire career all the time, all the way from the time I was a business analyst to manager, partner, senior partner, and so on. Every single executive I ever spoke to always talked about eliminating labor cost. And it it is always the same four-step process. One, of the labor we are forced to have, of the employees we are forced to have, we're going to find out how to increase their productivity, how to get more from them. Two, once we've optimized as much as we can, and we can't optimize anymore, we're going to outsource it to a lower cost country three once we've outsourced it to a lower cost country we're going to try to automate as much as we can first in the high cost country and then the low cost country and once we've automated it we're going to digitize as much as we can automation and digitization are different things but they're used interchangeably COVID has obviously made this a bigger topic because employees have realized that hold on a second maybe we don't need as many employees as we thought we need i've never seen an executive. Anyway, who's ever stood up and said our strategy is to hire more people but increase the output of companies who talk about investing in their employees making them feel part of the family developing their careers for the long term what they don't tell you is that of the employees we cannot eliminate even though we want to eliminate them of the ones we cannot eliminate until we figure out how we can eliminate them we are going to figure out how to increase their productivity. We'll talk about investing in them and so on, but the ultimate unset goal is to find an algorithm or a robot somewhere, but usually someone in a low-cost country first to replace them. Even when it's a strategy of investing in employees, the end goal is to replace them. Here's a deeper insight. What would happen if a company built a business model whereby it hired people but found a way to create incrementally greater value from their skills. We know machines can write books, produce movies, write songs, they can do that today. But the question is, can they do it better than the best human? And there has been a precedent in this, right? Back in the 1870s, 1900s when, especially in the United States and parts of Europe, when the economy was urbanizing from an agrarian farming society, people thought, well, machines are gonna put humans out of work, they can't do anything. But what we realize is that humans couldn't do anything because our educational system and schooling systems were not preparing them to do more. And by changing our educational and schooling systems, we trained humans, people, to create greater value. We're in the same position now. Technology is not going to put us out of um, work because eventually we'll respond by training humans to create more value. But there are going to be places that don't make that shift, and it's going to be a problem. You can look at certain countries like this that have done this well. You know, if you go to places like Italy and France, for example, a large portions of the economy are driven by sectors that you cannot automate and you cannot digitize away the labor content. Producing beautiful clothing, machines can make the process better. Technology can make it better. Digitization is a major shift in luxury brands. But you need people. Let's look at financial services, which is a great place whereby I think digitization is going too far in some areas and going too far in the wrong way in some areas. If you have a branch center, branch locations, one thing you could do is you could digitize that entire experience so people can do all of their banking online. I, for example, do almost all my banking online. I don't go into a branch for just about anything. The branch employees are only redundant and not necessary If they're doing something that the app can do better but what if a bank was smart enough to say what could we get our branch employees to do that an app cannot do that customers need that generate a significant amount of return for the bank there are obviously ways to do that but the fact that we have not figured out how to do it doesn't mean it cannot be done and that's the big insight here if you have employees and to be honest, there's, in some cases, in many countries, there's going to be an excess employees because of rapid digitization and dislocations like COVID, whereby unemployment goes up. If you've got a resource that's in excess supply, you can secure it at lower costs, which means if you can secure it at a lower cost, but you can figure out how to get them to produce something of extremely high value, you are in a very good position. But I don't see many companies doing this. What I do see many companies getting onto is the bandwagon of digitization, uh, automation, and treating it as, as if it is inevitable that you need to replace your employees. But that's not true because no matter what technology does and no matter what algorithms do, there's always going to have to be some human somewhere doing something of high value. The question is, if you run a business, can you make that mindset shift? From replacing your employees to thinking, what can I do with them so that they earn a fire return versus the next best alternative, which is digitizing and automating them. Digitization and automation are wonderful at lowering costs and increasing returns. That's true. But there's lots of precedent for keeping labor on your books and doing more with them. And that's the insight is how do you rethink the way you tackle your labor cost strategy the next big topic and it's probably one of the biggest topics we're seeing now is the massive interest in electric vehicles You know, kudos to elon musk he wasn't the only one but he was a big part of this for making electric cars mainstream not just in the media and in consumer sentiment but as part of policy making circles around the world the theme that i want to talk about here is does science need an industrial policy, a.k.a. protection? It's almost as if the world has decided and made the decision that we're going to go all in on electric as the predominant technology to become carbon neutral and protect the environment. There are many alternative technologies to electric cars. There's hydrogen. There's many of them. Right? I'm sure there's some technologies that I have not even heard of that being being incubated in a lab somewhere at Stanford. But what's happening is that policymakers are making implicit decisions to subsidize one technology and erect barriers to protect that technology. And by doing so, they are make it more expensive and raising the entry costs for alternative technologies. If one technology is better than another technology, why do we need to increase barriers to protect it? Shouldn't the better model be is to fund as many technologies as you can? to create the environment whereby they can duke it out and the one that does the best or is the most or the one that is best at solving the problem then bubbles up to the top. It's pretty much the way capitalism works. No one sector is chosen, no one company is chosen, everyone is given as much support as they can and the best rises to the top. Let's look at the example of COVID-19 because it's a good example of this. When the virus came along, many people in the world said it's practically impossible that a vaccine can be available in less than 2 years. Certain CEOs of major pharmaceutical companies went on the record to say that getting it within any 1 year is impossible. The government was involved but purely in funding or bankrolling initiatives. It never said this technology is better, we're going to fund this, everyone stop working on something else. By getting companies to fight against each other by getting technologies to fight against each other and by funding it they allowed the best technology to bubble up and it worked we had a vaccine in less than a year unprecedented achievement not just having one vaccine we have multiple vaccines which are now competing to see who will be the best vaccine which is the principle of capitalism when we pick which technology is going to grow that's soviet style planning And the issue is how do we know the people who are picking it are impartial? How do we know the people that are picking it are not politicians who may be funded by executives who have something to gain by having their technology selected? How do we know that the deciding vote by a group of key senators and congressmen, and I'm just using an American example here, it could apply to any country, are not backed by powerful lobby groups in their home states? We don't know. But we tend to assume that if the government's picking it's an impartial process if we're picking the technology today that's going to win do we pick the sectors tomorrow and the companies in a year from now what is the precedent for a country picking which companies which sectors and which technologies should be the chosen technology that's a lot like soviet style planning what is the government track record in picking technologies not very good actually That's why capitalism works best when the government creates an environment for the best to rise to the top, but doesn't get involved in picking who the best is. Because naturally the best is going to rise, so you don't have to pick it in the first place. And we've seen this play out time and time again. Early 2000s, the big topic then was gasoline-fired combustion engines polluting the environment. Many European countries decided that diesel was the way to go. They felt diesel would have lower noxious emissions in the absence of electric taking off. And there was a big push to go diesel. But what happened is that it was found later on that diesel had many other side effects and it wasn't such a good decision. So by picking a technology rather than allowing all of the competing technologies to fight it out and go for peer reviews and studies and so on, picking meant we we selected something that wasn't ready or wasn't fully proven. What is the role of government? That's the insight here. Around the world, we're talking about government intervention because the world needs government intervention. But is government intervention, government control and government decision-making of things like what technology is going to dominate in the next five to ten years? Or is government intervention saying, okay, we're going to protect all the players here who are fighting it out to figure out who is going to be the dominant player whose right is it to pick the winner beyond the market and what are the long-term implications for this because right now i know i have clients who are in very senior positions ceos coos cso's and so on who are sometimes making strategy decisions on the assumption that government should intervene and is that the right decision to make and we have a lot of clients who occupy senior government positions who have slowly accepted this view that governments should intervene and my question to them is that they're very smart people they know what they're doing but i want you to think about the long-term implications of what you're doing and how will it position your country relative to other countries who may be going for a different model of capitalism and what are the long-term implications of what you're doing if you, when you get voted out of office in two years or four years or you retire Everything you do is going to play through over the next 5, 10, 15 years and where is it going to leave your children and grandchildren? And is that where you want things to be? The third big strategy topic, the big news topic that we're seeing comes again from the automotive sector. And this one is entitled Big Value Chain Profit Pool Shifts Are Painful. It's like going to a doctor or a dentist to have a root canal without any anesthesia. And I'm going to to pin this entire conversation around a sub question which is what is the value of an automotive brand so what is the Porsche brand worth what is the Kia brand worth what is the General Motors brand worth what is the Volkswagen brand worth what is the Volvo brand worth if I've missed some important automotive company in your country I apologize I can't name them all it's not because I think these are the most important all companies are important they all play a valuable role in wealth creation and job creation so the question is, what is the value of an automotive brand? And you know automotive brands are worth billions of dollars. They are anchors of national pride. People, Italians, I'm sure, are proud to know that Ferrari comes from Italy. I'm sure Germans are proud to say that Porsche is manufactured in Germany. It's, it's German ingenuity at its best. And is the same for any other automotive brand. The brands are valuable and they are powerful symbols of national prestige. The good news and bad news for many automotive companies is we are really going to be finding out soon enough what a brand is worth because Apple has raised the stakes. What Apple has done is by having conversations with different automotive companies about whether they will manufacture an Apple car and brand it an Apple car and give up their brands, Apple is basically saying this, this is the choice you need to make do you believe your brand is so valuable that you want to go all in and invest on it or would you rather have stability of volume contracts from apple a guarantee well not guaranteed nothing's guaranteed but given apple's size and track record high degrees of certainty of large volume but at a lower margin what do you want what do you think is more valuable your brand or certainty with us and here's the strange thing this only works when i say works what i mean is it only means car companies have powerful brands or see their brands as being the core of their business if nobody breaks ranks if not a single automotive company signs up to apple we will never know the answer to it the reality is this someone is definitely going to break ranks for two reasons one is there are many automotive companies that are struggling losing billions of dollars a year a year The cost of switching into connected vehicles, electric vehicles, autonomous vehicles, AI-powered vehicles is so high that it's inevitable some automotive company is going to say, you know what, we're going to be a supplier. It's okay, and they're going to break ranks. As soon as they break ranks, the question is going to be answered. An automotive brand is not as valuable as you think it is. Of course, there's going to be some brands that are going to be very valuable, like anything in life, but a lot of them are going to decide it's better to be a contract manufacturer for Apple. There's a second reason why it will happen. It's not just automotive companies that are being spoken to. Contract manufacturers like Foxconn, which already supplies, well not supplies, but they do a lot of um, Apple's precision manufacturing in China and Taiwan and so on, and now India as well, they see an opportunity and they say, hey, hold on a second, automotive companies don't want to do this. Why don't we do it? We'll go to Apple and say, we'll build your cars for you. So automotive companies are caught in a difficult position if they say no to Apple they open up an opportunity for someone who's not in automotive manufacturing to get into automotive manufacturing fully subsidized by Apple so saying no to Apple doesn't stop Apple it just means well at the least you allow a very big powerful company to get into your space of manufacturing it's also an unprecedented shift from the 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, the way many Asian economies grew, Taiwan is a great example of this, is that they had the manufacturing capability, but they didn't have the brands. So what they would do is they would manufacture for companies like Palm Pilot in the United States, Compaq, but they would put the Compact logo on it. We call them um, original design manufacturers, white labeling. The holy grail of white labeling was not to be a white label, but to be a label, a brand. And over time those companies migrated up the value chain got closer to customers and branded themselves it's an historic shift for a brand of the caliber of an automotive company to decide that we're going to give up our brand and manufacture as a white label i've not seen that strategy before it's unprecedented and it has significant impact here it's extremely rare it's going to cause dislocations in the automotive sector countries that had powerful brands and had manufacturing in that location due to the powerful brand may realize that we're losing our manufacturing capacity because nowadays it doesn't matter where we manufacture the apple's logo on it even if it's manufactured in bangladesh for example it's got the apple logo on it people think it's an american product so it doesn't matter where we manufacture manufacturing could move very rapidly out from germany France, Spain's a big automotive manufacturer, Mexico's a big automotive manufacturer. Where are the profit pools going? How do you get ahead of it? Someone's gonna do the contract manufacturing for Apple. It may not be Apple, but someone's going to do it. The question becomes, if this is the shift that's happening in automotive, how do you get ahead of the shift? If it can happen in automotive, what other sectors can it happen in? That's what you have to think about as i wrap up this monday morning atm i'm going to talk about uh, a very interesting conversation i had with a client over the last um, few months this client is part of the strategy advisory team for the ceo's office at a very large american manufacturing giant but this coaching client has not had a great run at the company every time i speak to her once every month or two months she always tells me the company doesn't listen to me the ceo doesn't listen to me they're not doing things right they're not carefully analyzing things they're making big mistakes i don't know how to help them and i've heard this for a long time and every time i give advice i'm working on the assumption that her interpretation of what is happening is true because there's only so much i can probe certain things are sensitive where i don't want her to disclose it to me but i'm basing her entire career advice on making sure she has a level head in terms of how she's interpreting things so one day I asked, Give me an, you just said an example where the CEO doesn't make thoughtful decisions and he's, being, you know, not, he's not being as careful with shareholder money, he's not applying principles of just analytic problems. Give me an example of that. Give me an example of why you feel people are ignoring you and they should be listening to you. Just talk me through it. Not your interpretation of things. Leave out your interpretation. Just lay it out for me. And she said, well, during COVID, when there was a steep lockdown, her CEO got together with a group of other CEOs in the sector and they approached the U.S. Treasury Department. They asked for a bailout. And the number, and so the, the government came back and said, how much do you need? And her CEO said, we need X billion dollars. And her view on this was, how can he do that? He doesn't know how much we need. None of the other CEOs know how much we need shouldn't they have said you know what give us two to three weeks maybe four weeks we'll do the analysis we'll come back to you with an exact number because in her view one her ceo was not thinking through very carefully because he may have been asking for far less than they need two he doesn't know how much they need so how do they know they're better off after getting the money and three Numerous decisions are being made on the fly without the appropriate care, analysis, and thought that goes into it. And what she has proposed is that they set up twice weekly reviews on key questions. So any big question that comes up gets fed into her team. They do the analysis over one week or two week, and they feed it back to the CEO and board, and they make decisions. And she feels that none of her things are being listened to, and she doesn't understand why. She feels that it's a personal vendetta against her because of what she's asking for in listening to her i have no doubt she's wrong in this situation but it took me a bit of a time to explain to her why she's wrong in this situation she's very young she's 28 years old that's young in the world of strategy that's young and her view of strategy is she comes from a major consulting firm and she was very good at it but the way you do strategy on a strategy engagement where you have the luxury of time is very different from the way the CEO is going to make strategy decisions where he does not have the luxury of time. You know The example I used with her is I said, have you ever been to a steakhouse, a smoking house, where they make a brisket or something like that, where they smoke it for like maybe six hours, seven hours? I don't know how long it is, but it's a long time. Or you've ever had these French soups where they have to prepare it over four days, five days, sometimes overnight? And she said, yes, yes, I've had that. And you've ever eaten a hot dog, from a stand in New York or a taco from a taco truck and she said yes so what I pointed out to her was that all of these are food items right do you agree they're all food and she said yes but do you agree that the time to prepare them the technique to prepare each of them are very different but you agree they are still food they still serve the purpose of making you happy I hope and providing you nourishment and sustenance and she agreed the point I was trying to make with her is that The same way you get different types of food, but they're still solving the same problem. But they take different time to prepare, and they look different, and they taste different. Strategy also comes in different formats. The way strategy is done by the strategy engagement team from McKinsey, BCG, and so on, which has the luxury of time, but also is doing strategy in the way that best draws on their particular assets and capabilities, is different from a CEO who's going to have to make a very quick series of decisions, but doesn't have the same luxury. It's still strategy, but it's strategy done differently. I can imagine the conversation with um, the government. You've got all these CEOs on the line. You've got a I don't know who was on the line. I'm guessing maybe the Treasury of the secretary. I don't know. I'm speculating. The Treasury secretary is on the line, which is hard. He's a hard guy to get on the line. I'm guessing you got him on the line. He's asking, how much do you need? You're not going to say, give me two weeks and I'll come back to this. You're going to give him a big number because he's probably going to give you the money right there and there. In the real world, strategy is about numbers, but it's more about getting things done and surviving. If you, well, not you, but if the CEO knows the personalities of the other CEO, you know, CEOs, he knows the personality of the treasury officials on the call, he may realize that, look, if I don't put in a number here, Nobody's going to put in a number because everyone's a bit afraid to speak up. But I also know that if I don't put a number on the table, the treasury officials are going to feel like we don't have a handle on our business. And if they feel we don't have a handle on our business, then they're not going to back us because they don't want to back CEOs that don't know what's happening. So he may make the judgment call to give any number to get something rather than taking two weeks to get nothing. That's the way strategy is made in the real world. Where you have the luxury of time, take the time. Where you have the luxury of calling up a partner from the Boston Consulting Group and saying, we've got six weeks to make this decision, bring in a team, let's make the decision, by all means do that. And that is a great way to do it. But I've worked with many CEOs and they don't have that time. A lot of times when we make a decision together, we do it over lunch or coffee. Uh, In fact, usually it's lunch or breakfast. And we'll make a decision in that moment. You can apply logical thinking and critical problem solving skills without having all the numbers at hand. Because as the CEO, you have a rough understanding of the numbers. As a strategy partner, I have a rough understanding of the numbers. I know how to make the decisions without going through all the analysis. If you look at uh, for Slides members, we're gonna be updating a competition strategy study, which is very detailed response. And you can see how we make decisions if we have the luxury of time to do detailed calculations. But then for insiders, if you look at the corporate strategy and transformation study, the entire planning and entire strategy was put together in two days as a set of hypotheses without looking at any of the numbers. In this particular situation, she has abandoned her team, this client. Because in a manner of speaking, she's like a soldier who has spent a whole life learning to use a certain weapon. She goes onto the battlefield with her team, and they need a different weapon. They need to fight in a different way. And what she's saying, hey, hold on, guys. I'm going to go sit in the the corner there and, you know, drink my water rations while you guys fight it out and and realize that even though the enemy doesn't want to fight with the weapon I'm using, I want you to change and use the weapon I have. And until you realize this, I'm just not going to help you. What she's got to do is she's got to modify her approaches and the approach of her team to figure out how to help the executive team and, and particularly the CEO's office make decisions in the way they are being forced to make decisions. But she can't expect the world, the CEO and the company to stop and slow down just to allow her to work at the pace she wants to work. Thankfully, and you know, there's a big shout out to this client, she did change her approach. And if you look at uh, the firm's consulting website, you notice that we've changed the website quite significantly. And if you go to the start year section, we talk about what is a leader and start here. This is not an unusual conversation I have with um, clients who are what I call young leaders who have spent maybe um, a lot of time in consulting firms, but are breaking into management at the executive level, they've got to realize that the way you do strategy in the real world has got to change. And on the website under stature and leader versus analyst, we make that distinction very clear, because it's a very common challenge that many of our clients are facing. As always, I enjoyed speaking to you this Monday morning and I'll see you next week, Monday at 8 a.m. And that's it for today's episode. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I enjoyed doing the episode. Finally, I want you to remember that the only way to get access to our special offers, the only way to get our special pricing and the only way to get samples of our content is to join the list on firmsconsulting.com.